You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Good morning. Welcome, welcome. Good to see all of you here today. Got a great week ahead of us of liquid sunshine. (laughs) I got some new floor mats for my car. They're really nice ones. I'm not putting them in until all this rain stops. (laughs) I'll just have to clean them too. So, Anyway, um, let's remember... Uh, about our children's ministry, we have this uh, 10 after 12 rule. Um, so if the meeting ends early, wait till 10 after 12 before you go get your children so the uh, teachers can finish what they've started. We don't want to frustrate the people that uh, do so much for our kids. Let's give it up for those children's workers this morning. Why don't we do that? That's awesome. With one exception, the nursery. You may go get your child out of the nursery at any time. <laughs> uh, you understand how that works. So we have um, Sean Foyt is coming in next weekend. He's um, done these 24-hour burns for, you know, all 24-hour worship. And uh, he, I think within the last couple of years, he moved out to um, Reading. So he's associated with Bethel. But Sean has an amazing ministry to these Iraqi refugees and Syrian refugees. He takes his whole family into those areas and gives them blankets and mattresses and diapers and all kind of things like that. And so um, I was talking to John Mark a number of months ago, and he had been talking to Sean. We wanted Sean to come tell us about what he's doing because it's uh, it's important to be engaged in things like that that we can put our hands to. So we want to welcome Sean in here next week. Okay? Amen. In closing, I knew that'd make you happy. There's no short bad message, right? No bad short message. But this one probably won't be both of those. So take your pick. Um. This message I'm calling The Process, and it's uh, a little bit of a continuation from last week of what um, Andy had started talking about. And as you you heard earlier, in mid-March, we begin another season of our home groups. And so some of our recent messages are aimed at identifying the importance of building our lives with other people and developing friendships and learning the lessons of life together as believers in Jesus. Last week, Andy talked about and compared actual community with the idealistic idea of it. I want to recommend, um, if 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 you weren't here last week or if you were here last week and you weren't paying attention, I recommend you go to queencity.church and listen to that message because it was really a really good message. And um, so Andy was comparing actual community with the idealistic idea of it. And um, community, I think a lot of us have heard that word so much we're sort of tired of it. But it's become a buzzword for what people say they want, but often it's an unrealistic ideal. And I, I'm, I had this one question, and this is a great question. What generation knows how to fix what's wrong with itself? 
And um, I'm saying that in the context of we say we want life together until we have some life together, and it doesn't look like the life we thought we were going to have together. And so we don't have it together. We have it online. Uh, yeah. Um, could it be that what real community shows up Could it be that when real community shows up, people run from it or don't recognize it? And so I'll, um, I'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. But another thing that Andy was doing last week, he, he has and I have, and I know it's typical of a number of people, he's expressed, I've expressed, and our two situations are similar but they're different, this sort of nagging sense of what's missing or a, a sense of weakness, or a desire for more than we have. And, um, but Andy also shared how the Lord had touched him in a significant, joy-filled, refreshing, life-affirming way. Before the Lord touched him in that powerful, joy-filled, intoxicating way, he experienced a period of difficulty. And part of Andy's process, and part of everyone's process, is that at some point... I say we may deal with this inner sense of struggle or loss or emptiness. I think at some point everybody reaches that place in their Christian life. Um, you can actually go through seasons of it, and we, we shouldn't be shocked when that happens. You know, the worst thing you can tell somebody, I think, about the Christian life, it's going to be um, easy from here on out. Receive Jesus, everything's easy, because it's just not, simply not true. And if you give people the wrong understanding and the wrong expectation, it, it really will uh, sidetrack them or could even shipwreck them. So we need to be careful to be honest about what it is to be a believer. Well, part of Andy's process, part of everyone's process is at some point we may deal with this inner sense of struggle or loss or emptiness. In my life as well, the last number of years have been difficult ones. Um, and I have heard many others say, the same, and I've, I've been saved almost 50 years, and yet I could say it, it's not like the last number of years I dealt with depression or any of that. Mine has been sort of facing a certain amount of physical weakness and still trying to get the job done and put one foot in front of the other and the frustration that that, that can breed. And also when you go through certain life transitions, my ministry's transitioned, so I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's my distinctive now? What uh, Everybody ought to have that question. What distinguishes me from someone else? And what, what I mean by that is what is it you have to offer instead of trying to compete with the rank and file of everything else everybody offers? Because you have a distinction. You have something that distinguishes you. You have something to bring to the table and too many of us give that up to try to be what everybody else is. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it, it's, it's, you shortchange yourself. But it can be a little bit of a struggle identifying that. So my experience hasn't been exactly like Andy's. But one of the solutions is being filled with God in the way Andy experienced recently and as many have in the past. One way to describe Andy's life-giving experience, this is one of the metaphors, this is one of the ways I would describe it, is that he experienced 
an impartation of what can be called the oil of joy. In other words, he, he got touched with this presence, this power, this exhilaration, this anointing, this joy, this presence from God that begins to force out or replace some of that emptiness. Is everybody with me so far? This is sort of more prevalent. This concept or understanding might be more prevalent, more in the sort of Pentecostal spirit-filled realm than the evangelical realm. Nevertheless, it is very real, and I think it's very important that we um, live in the power of the Spirit to whatever degree we can uh, apprehend the power of the Spirit. So it's this intoxicating new wine of the Holy Spirit that I'm talking about. Now, we find that metaphor of oil. I mentioned that now, the oil of joy in Psalm 133. And so I believe is Psalm 133 up here, the overhead. Why don't we read this together? Because this is going to make zero sense without some further explanation. So turn to somebody and say, I'm confused already. And... We'll, we'll work through it. But the Bible's full of metaphors. And the metaphor is never as good as what it represents, as good as the metaphor may be. So Psalm 133 is talking about what happens when you are in a life arrangement with other people that's unified and blessed, Okay. And so the psalmist writes this, behold, how good, let's read this together. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What's it like? It's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Or what else is it like? It's like the dew of Hermon. Descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So Psalm 133 uses two different metaphors describing the benefits of precious, let's say that word together, precious. I want us to really hear that word, precious, valuable spiritual fellowship, and unity with a group of people. And I emphasize the word spiritual. You know, everybody's after this whole community idea, and three guys at Starbucks is not going to cut it. Three guys at the wine bar is not going to cut it. Because the kind of fellowship this is talking about, and I don't mean it's religious, it has got to have a reality to it, but it's where Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit is in the center of it. In other words, it's a spiritual fellowship that involves natural interchange like you'd find at Starbucks or at a restaurant or something like that. But it's more than that. It's something more precious than just people together trying to make connection. There's a spiritual dynamic that can radically change a person's life. And that's what I'm pointing at this morning, a spiritual fellowship. Um, okay, the metaphor of oil is also used in Isaiah 61.3. And in that, the first verse, I'm, I'll repeat the first part of the first verse, and then I'm going to jump to the third. 
verse, but it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is something Jesus was actually preaching over in the gospels to console those who mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. Let's say that phrase together, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And so um, the gospel Jesus preached involved an impartation of the spirit that he turned the oil of joy, which was an antidote for mourning or depression or negativity. Can you go with me there? That's one of the attributes that we have as believers or we should have. And so the solution to mourning or that loss or sense of loss is resolved in part by this one thing, the oil of joy. Now, I really love Jesus. Let me go on record. I love the real Jesus. I don't, I don't, I don't love the, um, you know, those pictures of the weird Jesus with his hands doing something weird and that's not the Jesus. I love the happy Jesus. I think Jesus was the happiest person ever lived. Now, okay, he was a, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but that was in his anointing. <clears throat> See, we're just looking at this idea of the oil of joy and we're looking at this idea of oil and the anointing of Aaron the great high priest in Psalm 133. Oh, Jesus was acquainted with some things that he wasn't anointed with. And the idea of an anointing is something that permeates your being and it becomes whatever it releases in you becomes a characteristic of who you become. And Jesus was not anointed with sorrow or heartbreak. He was acquainted with it, but his anointing was this. Psalm 45, 7, and it repeats this in the book of Hebrews about Jesus. He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his fellows. So do not buy into a gloomy Jesus. You may buy into a Jesus that will prophesy straight truth things, but his temperament, his, his personality, as far as I've understood it, after all these years of thinking and praying and reading, was that he had an anointing of joy so profound that he was accused of being a wine-bibber or a drunkard. That's a happy man. If you can be accused of being a drunkard when you're not because of the way you act in public. Personally, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ was the happiest, most joyful man who ever lived because he knew what heaven was like. He knew what his father was really like. He did not come to the world to tell the world how bad everything was. He came to the world to tell the world how bad it was, but there was someone or something that could absolutely overcome all of that. And it's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not meat and or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Um, so I'm saying this so much was the joy he had as a part of his persona that he was accused of being a drunkard. The Passion Translation um, 
verse 19 of, I didn't put the book. So I can't, I think it was Matthew, but I'm not sure. But anyway, here's the verse. Yet when the son of man came and went to feast and drank wine, you said, look at this man. He's nothing but a glutton and a drunkard. He spends all his time with tax collectors and other affluent sinners. But God's wisdom will be visibly seen living in those who embrace it. So there was one of the accusations that made the scripture about Jesus' temperament, his personality, and his behavior. Interestingly to me also is that at Pentecost, his disciples were accused of the same thing after being filled with the Holy Spirit. They mocked, saying, these men are full of new wine. Well, the oil of gladness and the presence or the presence of God can be synonymous terms for the very same thing. So we have two different metaphors, and both metaphors speak of the same thing. In Psalm 1611, speaking of what the Father will do, the writer, might have been David, I'm not sure, said, you will show me the path of life. What path? The path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that's how we know we have found the path of life. We begin to experience the presence of God, which has with it a fullness of joy. We begin to actually experience the pleasures of knowing God. This is a, this is a lost message. God is not just to be feared or honored or revered. He's to be enjoyed. Boy, that's a, don't shout me down cause I'm preaching good. When's the last time you thought, my, I so enjoy the Lord. That should be a normal, that should be a normal thought we have. God is awesome. God is great. God is fun. He's a party man. If you let God get loose in your house, there will be a party. So be careful. Now, let's go back to Psalm 133. Hey, we're doing pretty well. Let me see. I'm on page two. I've got 11 pages of notes. But I'm not going to do all that, obviously. Now, Psalm 133. It is that oil. What oil? The oil I've just been talking about. It's that oil that dripped down Aaron and his beard on the, his garments and the dew that descended upon Hermon. Those metaphors are describing what I've just um, articulated a little bit. The anointing oil that flowed over Aaron speaks of the joy of the Lord. And the dew that descended upon Mount Hermon speaks of refreshing and rejuvenation. Um, How many of you have gone out in the springtime and the, the winter's over and the dew, gosh, you go out early in the morning and the dew has just settled on everything. And it's like you can breathe in this pristine um, purity that sort of gives sap to your soul. It's a refreshing element to life. How many of you know what I'm talking about? There's several things I can remember about my boyhood down in South Carolina and due west. I can remember what it was like early in the morning when that dew settled. And I can remember late in the evening uh, down in the pecan, 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 pecan groves. 
pecan north, pecan south, groves where the whippoorwills would sing. And I, you, you know, there's certain elements in nature that call you to a deeper, profound reality than just a natural sound or a natural smell or a natural fragrance. It speaks to you of something in another realm that's available but a little bit slippery and hard to get a hold of. Well, that's, that's what I think about when I can hear in the evening after the heat of the day and it's cooled off and the wind's blowing and I can hear those whippoorwills. I can hear them down there in the pecan groves singing. And it stirs something inside of me, even as a young boy, that I didn't understand. But it's this yearning for the presence of God. It's that yearning for walking with God in the evening in the cool of the day. It's that thing every single person is born with, although they may not know they have it, which is a hunger and a desire for God, though it be corrupted, misinformed, and perverted in all kinds of different ways. Nevertheless, I believe every single person has inside of them, if they knew the real God and they knew the real Jesus, they would give everything up to possess him. That dew speaks of the pristine freshness, that sense of clean, pure, refreshing morning awakening. We should never underestimate the ability of the Holy Spirit to energize us with joy and flood us with refreshing. It's essential in any church to develop and cultivate an atmosphere of God's presence, meaning an atmosphere where we experience the literal presence of the Lord, of his joy, of his peace, and of his goodness. I think we could feel the presence of the Lord during the worship this morning. How many of you could feel something going on there? That's something we should cultivate. Actually, that is one of the only true distinctions churches have from many other organizations, or should have, is God. What's the difference in the Lions Club and the church? God, well, this one distinction, and of course there are others, but that's one we should never be without. If we're serving God and we're saying we're part of the body of Christ, shouldn't God be there? Shouldn't there be demonstrations and manifestations and essences of the presence and his power? Well, sure they should. We should be disappointed. We should be hungry. Have you ever tried to feed a child that wasn't hungry? I can remember Donna and I went off somewhere and we left our kids with my mother. And um, so we called home to see who'd burnt the house down yet. And Andy, my third son, got on the phone and he said, Grandmother made me eat food out of the garbage can. <laughs> so I got, I got my mom on the phone and I said, what did the chef serve for dinner? You know, what do you mean? I said, well, Andy said you made him eat out of the garbage. And she said, well, I'll tell you what Andy did. Andy wouldn't eat his supper and he, he snuck it in the garbage and I saw it in the garbage and I pulled it back out of the garbage and said, you're going to eat your supper. But Andy was notoriously not hungry a lot. It's hard to make up someone who's not hungry eat. 
Well, it's hard for the presence of God to come in places where people aren't hungry for him. You can lead a horse to water, but, 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 you can't. I'm sorry. I sound like Elmer Fudd there for a second, didn't I? You can't make him drink. And so part of what we do in our messages, in our worship, is try to stimulate people's hunger for the Lord. If we can build that hunger into people, field of dreams. If you build it, he will come. Well, he's already here, but I mean come in the way where he's unmistakably here. If you build that hunger, people will come. If you build that thirst, people will be thirsty, and he will certainly feed your hunger. He feeds everyone who's hungry. He satisfies every thirsty soul. But we filled ourselves up with so much other stuff. We need to fast from some of it and get hungry again. Um, but the church should always be a presence-based community of people, which brings us back to this idea of home groups or small groups. What's a good home group like at its best? It's like the oil, the precious oil that flowed down Aaron's head, beard, all the way down to the hem of his garments. It can be a place that through time of connection and fellowship, the oil of joy flows and lives are changed. What's a good home group like at its best? It's like the dew of Hermon that descended upon the Mount of Zion. It's like living in the benefits of a blessing only the Lord can command, life forevermore. It can be a primary place of refreshing and experiencing life on the level that only God gives it. I like that phrase, the precious oil. That's what it says in Psalm 133. It's like the precious oil that ran down. If, if we're going to read Leviticus 8 here in a few minutes and look at a process Aaron had to go through before the oil flowed. But the difference in Aaron and Aaron's two sons who were also anointed is they were touched with the oil. Aaron had oil poured on him. How many of you have ever been in an anointing service where they poured oil on you? Poured. Messed up your clothes, got on the floor, slippery when wet. Well, that's a description of what happens when God can really touch you. It'll permeate you. It's like the precious oil. It was not just oil. What was it? Precious oil. That oil was called precious. Something precious is something you treasure. Is something you yearn for when it's gone. Is something you would pay a high price for. Travel a great distance to gain. Alter your life for. Adjust your schedule for. And it's only when life has knocked you down a few times. And that disappointment has dealt you a few shattering blows. Welcome to the Christian life. And when your expectations of love, success in business, faulty relationships... And a myriad of other things has jumped you like a thief in the night that you may come to fully appreciate and understand how precious, how utterly precious the oil of God really is.
got real quiet. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to present a gloomy picture of life. But if you've lived long enough, this resonates. And if you haven't lived long enough, you need to understand what you could go through. But you also need to understand this no matter what you go through. God has a solution for your life. You see, because your expect listen, your expectations about church are going to be dashed at some point. Some preacher is going to disappoint you. I may have that privilege myself. I hope I don't. I love my wife. I don't want to run out on her. I don't want to steal. But who knows? I've lived too long. I've watched too much. I know too many stories, some of them firsthand, that but for the grace of God, every one of us is in huge, huge trouble. But we have the grace of God, the sustaining grace of God. But now let me give you a little bit of reality check. And I've already begun to talk about this. But there's a process many go through before they experience the oil of joy spoken of in the life of Aaron, the refreshing typified by the dew of Hermon, both described earlier in Psalm 133. And we find the process that preceded the anointing of Aaron as high priest, which is described in Psalm 133. But we find the event in Leviticus 8, 4 through 12. And so I'm going to read this. Uh, it, it, it should be on the screen. You don't have to read it out loud unless you want to. Do you want to? I didn't think so. Okay. So here's what's going on. Aaron is going to be anointed as the first high priest of Israel. And so this is, this is what we find in, in these verses. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was gathered together at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord commanded to be done. Now, you're going to understand why Moses said that. Let's read that one phrase together. This is what the Lord commanded to be done. Several of you did that. The rest of you. This is what the Lord commanded to be done. In other words, Moses said, hey guys, it's not my idea. This is God's idea. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod, and with it tied the ephod on him. Now let me stop there. Do you imagine... And this was before all of Israel that when Aaron was going through this process of washing, that Moses washed him with clothes on that became wet and then dressed him with the sanctified Levitical garb on top of those old wet clothes. No. Guess what happened first before the washing? The stripping. And see, this is something we need to understand. Moses said, God told me to do this. I really didn't want to do it. And so he sets up before all Israel, Moses and, I mean, Aaron and his two sons. And the first thing that happens is they're stripped. 
Then they're washed. Then they're clothed. They put the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, the turban on his head, the golden plate, the holy crown, all of these different aspects of the high priest's garb. Also, Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointed the altar and all its utensils, the labor, its base to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And so that's what we find described in Psalm 133. And so here's what I'm trying to say this morning. For you to receive the highest, most valuable, wonderful touch from God, you are most likely going to have to go through what I called the process. The process. Stripping, washing, clothing, anointing. Now, it doesn't have to be public. But let me ask you this question. What happens if you don't have a people and your life falls apart? What happens if you don't have a people? You know, you will never get healed by yourself. You won't. You'll never recover on your own. I say never. It's not likely. And see, one of the problems that happens, and I see it all the time, is people begin, and listen, this is going to happen to everyone at some point in their life, and if you don't understand it, you're going to make the wrong choice. When they get stripped or when their weakness is exposed or their nakedness or their sinfulness, the natural inclination is to run, to flee. But if you do, you will never fully recover. That's why you need a people. And I don't mean go to church on Sunday. I mean a people. A people that know you. Now, when I describe the glories of home groups, you also have to include stripping clothing or stripping, washing clothing and anointing. Because that's what happens in relationships. And see, if you say you want community and you do not understand all of this is part of the whole, you will be disappointed because your expectations, which were idealism, not reality, will be dashed and you will forfeit what it is to become full and whole and healed. I see it all the time. People get exposed and they run. And you know what they're running from? They're running from the mercy of God. And here's the problem. Wherever you land, you're still you. You're still naked. You're still stripped. You're still unhealed. And you will stay there until somebody else finds out who you are. Actually, I wish I could remember this, but in the book of Isaiah, it talks about, um, oh, it is, for the Lord has given me a word for the weary that I might speak to him in due season. And that word for weary means weary 
um, worn out from a wearisome flight. It means you've been running and running and running and you're tired because you're running away from who you are and you can't do it. Well, what do you need? Well, you need somebody you trust. You don't want to come up front this morning and say, I'm a just shot my, just poisoned my boss and nobody knows about it yet. And he died last week. This is not the place for that. And I have seen people stand up in church just like this after a message like this and expose their most deep and hideous parts of their lives. And it, it destroyed them. It's not right. But you, you need to have a people. Say a people. You need to have a people. You may have, have some relationships that are real. Starbucks relationships are okay, but if they're not centered and focused around the power of the Spirit, they're not going to work. Now, we can short-circuit the process God has for us. We try to avoid the painful part of the process but we abort the opportunity of experiencing that joy and that outpouring. See, one of the things with, with say, Andy and I, we, we have actually discussed certain aspects of our own emptiness. We, we have at least a relationship deep enough to where we can expose ourselves to each other. My wife you know, I love my wife. She knows me better than I know myself. I say, honey, how am I doing? <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> but you, you, need to, you need to have people you can open up to. And, and here, here is another secret. This process goes on the rest of your life. You'll go through seasons. Now, Oddly enough, it's really not our sin that it keeps that keeps us from experiencing the freedom and cleansing of God, because God forgives sin, but it's our pride. It's our hatred of exposure, our reluctance to be honest, but rather the inclination to hide and cover and excuse and run. But even the stripping process has a huge value in our lives if we understand what's going on. Why should we endure the process? What value is it to feel weak or vulnerable or exposed or naked? Arthur Burt used to say, you, you can never disown something you don't fully own. That's what it is to get saved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What do you have to be to get saved? Unadmitted sinner. But if you're not a sinner, you can't get saved. You understand what I'm saying? You own this to disown it, to get that. And so it's not really the sin that keeps you, in a certain sense, from experiencing the fullness of God. It's your pride. And what does God, the Bible never says God resists sin. God forgives sin. God resists the proud. So, so to God, pride is a much more dangerous problem right. than sin is. Right. Yeah. 
if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So you bring who you are to the light. You walk with other people, according to 1 John, and the blood of Jesus has this washing and cleansing effect. And then the love of God and the love of the brethren has this covering and clothing effect. And then the power and presence of God can anoint and empower and refresh and restore. The process doesn't always work exactly the way I describe it because God can do whatever he wants to do. But all these elements are there. But even the stripping process has huge value. Or what kind of value? Well, it can bring us to a new place of dependence upon God. And to not depend upon God is to be ignorant. We all depend upon God whether we know it or not. What was it? The guy said, well, I guess some terrible thing came up. And he said, well, I guess I'll have to trust the Lord. This other preacher said, well, that's too bad. What a terrible place to come to. Trust God. But you're not Christian if you don't trust God. I mean, in, you know, there are levels. And trust is learned. God proves himself to us, so we'll trust him more. Brings us to a new place of dependence when we're in that place. It helps us deal with our bad attitudes and our pride. It shows us how every man feels. What do you call that? Compassion. It can reveal unhealed wounds. It identifies us. Going through that very process identifies us as true children of God. Now, let me go back about dependence. We need to learn how to trust God. None of us do it voluntarily. Have you ever found that out? None of us trust God voluntarily. You don't think, Lord, just let my business collapse and let me learn how to trust you more. No, we don't do that. The business collapses and we go, uh-oh. I'll tell you it's hard to trust. It's another place it's tough to trust God is when everything goes well. Sometimes that's a bigger danger than catastrophe. Okay, about humility. If God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble, we need to be able to identify those attitudes because life gets less and less difficult the more that God doesn't resist us. One thing to have the devil on your case, but what if the God's after you too? Think about that a while. Compassion for others. And this may be one of the most important aspects of going through those seasons. It's so easy to criticize people for their errors, their sins, and problems until we have some. We so casually criticize, condemn, ridicule other people, and that's the source of our many failures, although we rarely connect our judgments and bad attitudes about others as to being the source of our own failures in conduct and action. What do I mean? You that judge do the same. There's this whole idea that um, when you criticize people, when you judge people, when you're harsh, God's resistance implies that he can take away from you the capacity not to become those people you despise. Hello? 
We need to have hearts of compassion for those around us. John 15, 12. Jesus said, so this is my command. Love each other deeply as much as I have loved you. For the greatest love of all is a love that sacrifices all. And this great love is demonstrated when a person sacrifices his life for his friends. What else can we get from those periods of weakness? Well, God can reveal in our lives unhealed wounds. Unhealed wounds can trap us in bad behavior for a lifetime. Unhealed wounds hurt people around us because hurt people do what? Hurt people hurt people. If we aren't healed, we're going to misrepresent the Lord to others. You know, most people's doctrine is terribly colored by their experience. People develop all kinds of doctrines for whatever foibles they may have or whatever weird ways they think about things. It's just the way we are. But if we aren't healed, we're going to misrepresent the Lord to others. And God will, will heal what we expose to him and to others in the right format. And he shows us that we're truly his children. Hebrews 12, 4 through 8. This is the Passion Translation. After all, you have not yet reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. He's talking about Jesus in the garden. And have you forgotten his encouraging words spoken to you as his children? He said, my child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and training of the Lord God or get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself, the King James uses the word scourges there, it proves you are his delightful child. Fully embrace God's correction as part of your training. For he's doing what any loving father does for his children. For who has ever heard of a child who never had to be corrected? We all should welcome God's discipline as the validation of authentic sonship. For if we were never once, for if we have never once endured his correction, it only proves we are strangers and not sons. And so I can't go through all the rest of this, but God wants to wash us through forgiveness. Through the application of his word, it says in Ephesians 5.26, really between the relationship of a husband and his wife, the relationship there can be described this way, that God might sanctify and cleanse the body of Christ with the washing of water by the word. It's why knowing the Bible is so important. If you listen to and believe the Bible, it can wash you. It can cover you. And then the cleansing that comes from fellowship I mentioned earlier out of 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I'll read this last verse out of 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. 
And above all things, have fervent love for one another for what will love do? Love will cover a multitude of sins. Okie doke. That's it. If there's anyone who've never received Jesus as your Lord, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it also says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent his son in the world not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Is anyone here today and you've never received Jesus and you'd like to, why don't you raise your hand and we'll, uh, you could come up and we'll pray for you. Is anyone here wants to receive Jesus today, you've never done it? I know this is maybe not easy to do, but um, if you have an easy birth, you won't be prepared for life. And one of the things about being a Christian is you don't need to be ashamed you need to be bold. So anyone here never received Jesus, you'd like to give your life to the Lord today. Let me give you another moment. We'd love to pray with you and help you. Okie doke. Well, listen, God bless you folks. Andy, you got anything to say? You're good. Um, Stephen, we have teams today. We have prophetic healing teams. If you want more prayer today, We'll be glad to meet you right over here in this side of the auditorium. And let's pray and ask God to bless our week. Why don't you stand up with me? We'll do that. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for how much you love us, that you don't leave us alone, that you bring us through, that you don't want to just see our lives exposed, but you want to see our lives washed You want to see us clothed with your righteousness. You want us to be healed with your healing. You want us to be anointed with your spirit. So, Father, that's what we're asking you for. We're asking for us to be um, a washed, clothed, healed, and anointed body of people that can go tell other people about how good you are. Lord, put that on our hearts. Bless us this week. Give us opportunities to love people that aren't lovely and love people that are lovely. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.